as I told y'all, Brother Martin called me yesterday about 4 o'clock, and it probably wouldn't have made any difference if he were to call me 4 o'clock last week. Uh, I don't know that I know how to put a sermon together. I'm certainly not a preacher or a theologian. So what I've done is gone back into some notes that I had from our uh, Bible study on Daniel and the Revelation. Uh, it's interesting, but it's also pertinent because we are living in the end times. We've been in the end times, but every day I pick up my phone and I read emails, I realize how close we are to the prophecies that uh, we have before us. There is much debate, much speculation about the things that are coming, the rapture, the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon, the second coming of Jesus, and all I can tell you for certain is that they are going to happen. The only question is what do they mean and when are they going to happen and what order are they going to uh, manifest themselves. What I'm going to share this morning is something that I think leads me to be in the camp of the pre-tribulation people. And what I mean is that the tribulation is a certain fact, the rapture is a certain fact, and I believe that the next thing that's going to happen is going to be the rapture of the church. And I believe it will precipitate the tribulation. That's my thinking. There are plenty of people that think otherwise, that it's going to come during the mid part of the tribulation and that Christians are going to have to be part of the first three and a half years. But I need to just give you some background of what I know as far as the tribulation and uh, what I believe doesn't matter. Uh, the only thing that matters is that Jesus is coming back. Uh, that's for certain. And we have to be ready on a daily basis. We are going to go back into Daniel. Uh, he was given a prophecy. Uh, we know it as the 70 weeks of Daniel. And what he was doing was he knew from older prophecies that he was an old man. He had been in captivity in Babylon for, for almost 70 years. We know that he was reading the scrolls and he realized that uh, the time of captivity was coming to an end and he was praying to God about going back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the, the temple. And he knew that 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 time was coming. He was confessing the sins of his people, the nation of Israel, and asking God to allow them to go back. Well, he's thinking in terms of 70 years, and an angel is going to be dispatched to correct his thinking. And so this gets us back to where we, this is the, the, the basis for what Daniel's uh, prophecy came from. When the children of Israel entered into the promised land, God told them, go in, be fruitful, multiply, till the ground, plant crops, harvest the crops, and I'm going to bless you. He told them. He didn't ask them. He told them they could till the land for six years, and they could harvest it. But on the seventh year, they were required to leave it fallow, to not plant anything. And he said, I'm going to bless you with a double harvest on the sixth year. And it's going to be enough to sustain you through the seventh year and into the eighth year when you can receive your next harvest. Well, that's the same thing God told uh, 
the Israelites or told Moses when he provided manna in the desert. He told them, uh, go out and collect all you need, but don't save it. Don't try to hoard it. Just get what you need for that day, and there'll be more there the next day. And he said, on Saturday, I'm going to give you a double portion of manna so you don't have to collect it on Sunday because I don't want you doing that. Well, some of them tried to hoard it for a midnight snack or for an early morning breakfast or whatever. Guess what? It molded and worms got into it. But on the, on the day before the Sabbath, when they got a double portion, the manna stayed good so they could eat it on Sundays. Same thing with, with what he's telling the Israelites here <clears throat> uh, in the promised land. But they started doing the math, and, you know, we're guilty of it too. They said, well, heck, we can get a double harvest on the sixth year, and we'll just plant on the seventh year, and we'll be in high cotton, so to speak. We'll, we'll, we'll have plenty of stuff. Well, our math and God math doesn't ever... Uh, doesn't ever jive. And God allowed that to go on for 500 years. And he finally, uh, he finally said, that's it. Uh, and in uh, Leviticus chapter 26, verses 33 through 35, not going to read them, but if uh, you can go back and read these if you want any references to these scriptures. God basically tells them, you know, I'm fixing to kick you out of the land. And you're going to be out of the land for the amount of time you owe me. You owe the land 70 Sabbaths. Well, the word Sabbath can be weekly Sabbath. It can be a Sabbath every seven years, which is what this means. And it can even be the 50-year Jubilee Sabbath. We translate it all Sabbath. But they neglected to let the land lay fallow for 70 years of seven that's where that is the basis for what Daniel's prophecy is going to to come to so Daniel's praying and uh the angel comes to him and he says Daniel God heard your prayer and the answer was dispatched the minute you prayed it but I've been detained by the forces of evil by the prince of the world for 21 days and Michael came and helped me to fight off these people that were preventing me from bringing you this answer. And he says, God's heard your prayer, uh, but your misunderstanding is not about 70 years. It's about 70 periods of time. And that word that we translate years, it's, it's really a period of time. It can be weeks, uh, it can be uh, seven years, which in this case it is, or seven periods of time. So there's going to be 70 sevens, and that is where God is going to recover the 70 uh, Sabbaths that they owed the land for not leaving it fallow. And the angel is very specific. He tells them these 70 periods of time are going to be divided into three parts. The first part is going to be seven years, 70 weeks, seven weeks, which is actually 49 years. Y'all hang with me. Uh, the second part is going to be 62 periods of time. So, and those two periods are going to be contiguous. The angel's very specific, and this prophecy is 2,200 something years in Daniel's future. 
But he tells them exactly what day the clock is going to start ticking on this prophecy. And it's, you can look all this up in Daniel 9, and, and the angel tells him that, that uh, you will know when a decree is issued for the rebuilding of the streets and the moat in Jerusalem. Guess what? We have biblical records and we have historical records that confirm that King Artaxerxes issued that decree. We know exactly the day. They kept immaculate records. From that day to the end of the 749 years, the first period, uh, there was something that was going to initiate the second period of 62 weeks, and I can't remember uh, what that was, but we were told those two set parts are going to be contiguous. It's going to be uh, 69 years total, or 69 sevens. And uh, the, the end of the, the second period, the description was, and the Messiah will be cut off. And I think I remember that it, it means that he will be no more, or he will be not but basically what it means is that Jesus was going to be crucified and killed. And uh, we know when that happened. And not that it's strange to believe, but it was exactly uh, 483 years from the day that Artaxerxes issued the decree to the end of that 69th week. Uh, but their 70 weeks were foretold, were uh, prophesied. Where is that last week? Where is that last period of seven? It's the tribulation. Now, why did God pause the clock at Jesus' crucifixion? For us. From the day of Pentecost to the day that Jesus raptures the church is known as the church age or the times of the Gentiles. It is for us to come to know Jesus as Lord. And I'm not even insinuating that it wouldn't have happened anyway because God had foretold this way back in the Old Testament that the Gentiles would be saved. But the reason it happened when it did is because the chosen people of God rejected Jesus instead of calling him Lord. They call for him to be crucified. Now, I've got to go back even further uh, to explain what the tribulation is for. But I'll tell you up front, it's not about us at all. It's all about Israel. It's all about the Jews. There, I think there's five covenants in the Bible, but the ones that we're most familiar with are the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the Davidic Covenant. Now, the covenant that God made with Abraham and the covenant that God made with David, they are unilateral and they are unconditional. Uh, in other words, God made the covenant and there were no conditions to it. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. You're going, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. He told David, you will never lack a king from your line to sit on the throne. Abraham and David could not change that covenant because God made it. The Mosaic covenant 
was different. It's what's called a bilateral conditional covenant. And if you remember, when Moses brought the Israelites through the desert and they came to the foot, to the base of Mount Sinai, God told Moses, I want you to consecrate the priest. I want the people to take a bath. I want them to clean their clothes. I want them to purify themselves because I'm coming down on the mountain and I'm going to give them my statutes and my laws and you're going to give them to the people. And that's what happened. And he told him, he said, put a, put a boundary up around the base of the mountain because if they, if they accidentally get too close, my holiness is going to consume them. So... Uh, Moses came down and he gave them the statutes and the decrees that God had given him. And the Israelite people as a whole said, whatever God says, we're going to do it. Uh, and that's actually found, this, this whole uh, set of scriptures is found in Exodus 19, 5 through 8. And then it's also confirmed in Exodus 24, 7 through 8. But the people responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. And they, said, they did that twice. And this is a national covenant. It wasn't a covenant between God and one man. The whole nation was responsible for agreeing to this covenant. And they did not uh, obey, but they never could because... The national covenant covered every Jew that's ever been born for all times and in all places. The nation of Israel today, God's chosen people, are still out of relationship with God because this covenant is broken. It was a national covenant on the whole nation of Israel. They violated that covenant thousands of years ago and they are still in violation. The tribulation is where God is going to correct that. At the end of the tribulation, God says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. That is when the covenant is going to be restored. So that is the purpose of the tribulation. The purpose of this gap is God's business, but we have benefited from it. But I say this, all the theologians will tell you quickly that there is nothing that prevents Jesus from coming back this afternoon. There are no prophecies yet to be fulfilled and there's no reason that Jesus can't come back today to rapture his church. Doesn't mean he might not come back a thousand years from now, but it does mean that there's nothing else that has to happen. Uh, he could come today as easily as he can come ten years from now. So, that's important. And uh, I'm going to share two things that I believe that actually are important to us and that I think help me lean towards a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, now, uh, as I said earlier, the church age, which we are known it's the church age, but we are also, as Christians, we are known as the bride of Christ. Jesus made that analogy himself. He said the church is his bride and he is the groom. And the fact that he said it makes it 
uh, it, it's factual. I mean, we can't, we can't uh, change that to mean anything else. Uh, we are the church, but the church is his bride. And I just want to tell you, uh, I realized something, I don't know, in the last couple of years that has just brought me to my knees. What an honor. What a privilege that is to be the bride of Christ. And I never thought about it, but the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Moses, uh, Noah, uh, David, they were heroes of the faith, but they are not the bride of Christ. The people that are going to die, the millions of people that are going to die in the tribulation, the tribulation saints, they're not the bride of Christ. We hold a special place as the bride of Christ. Doesn't mean God likes us more, but it does mean we're special. Uh, and that has affected me. Now, I know we don't practice the Jewish festivals. We don't, we don't even know about them. Uh, but I'm going to give you something from the placement of the Jewish festivals that I think is significant in, the, in God's prophetic calendar. There are seven festivals. Four of the festivals are in the spring. Three of the festivals are in the fall. These festivals are symbolic of things that have happened and symbolic of things that, that, that will happen. And, you know, we think that this stuff about the festivals, that's Old Testament stuff. Well, I used to think that, but uh, about a year or so ago I was reading and I, and I really got confused because I was reading the Bible chronologically and I realized that uh, I know kind of how things are going to go, that Jesus is going to come back after the tribulation and he's going to uh, throw Satan and the Antichrist and the, uh, the prophet, the false prophet, into the prison for a thousand years and he's going to rule and reign on the earth. But the temple that's going to be rebuilt, they call it Ezekiel's temple. And Ezekiel gives uh, minute instructions. I mean, just, just down to the minutest detail of what that temple's going to look like. And I can tell you right now, when Jesus is ruling and reigning on the throne in Jerusalem, in the new temple, there are going to be blood sacrifices in that temple. You can go back and read this in Ezekiel 40. So why would we think that if we're still going to continue a blood sacrifice system, and it's for a different reason, and I've, I've, I've satisfied that with myself. Jesus paid our price, the penalty for our sins, once for all time, and it was done at Calvary. But there's still going to be blood sacrifices when he comes back and rules on the earth. Y'all go read it, look it up for yourself. But that tells me that these Jewish festivals are not going to go away either. God instituted them for a reason, and they still have a reason, still have a function. Now, the four festivals that are found in the spring are uh, Passover, Unleavened Bread, First Fruits, and Pentecost. These four festivals prophetically have already been fulfilled. The three fall festivals, which are the Festival of Trumpets, the Festival of Atonement, and the Festival of Tabernacles, they are still to be future-filled. They are still in our future. 
there is a four-month gap between the fourth festival and the fifth festival. It's called the summer hiatus. It's a four-month summer hiatus is what that four-month gap is called. Guess where we're living. We are in. We are living today in this summer hiatus. And I'm going to read uh, I'm going to read a verse you're familiar with. John chapter 4, verse 35. This is Jesus saying, Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes, look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. This four-month period of time between the festivals is this 2,000-year gap that is the church age. It is what God has given. And, you know, we know that God is going to tell Jesus to come back and rapture his church when the last believing Gentile has been gathered. Uh, and that's, what, that's the only thing holding Jesus back. Now, the next festival... In the, in the Jewish calendar, which is in the fall, it's the Feast of Trumpets. It's September the 6th. Now, am I saying that Jesus is going to come back on September the 6th? Absolutely not. But it is the Feast of Trumpets, and that should ring a bell. 1 Corinthians 15.52 says, The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Feast of Trumpets could be viewed prophetically of the rapture and the end of the church age. So, here's the kicker. Unless you've got some Jewish blood running through your veins, when Jesus comes back to rapture the church, any opportunity for a decision is gone. And, and I struggled with that many, many years ago when I was talking to a pastor friend of mine, and he said, well, when this is the bottom line. We're either going to die or we're going to be raptured. But in either case... Our choices are gone. Our decision, our opportunity to make a decision for Christ is gone. So you can't bank on Jesus waiting because there's nothing preventing him from coming back. And you can't bank on being alive tomorrow. So there is a point to all of this that I'm saying, the facts that I'm giving you. They're interesting, but they also are very pointed. So uh, like I said, Jesus himself has called us the church his bride. And I want to look at another verse of scripture that's very familiar to you. You've heard it preached in these pulpits, but you've probably only heard it preached at funerals. But I'm going to use this verse to show an analogy of how I think it works with Jesus coming back to rapture the church. John 14, verse 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Now this is a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples because he's just told them he's fixing to be gone. They are distraught and he's comforting them with these words. But what we hear and what they hear were two totally different things because what this is is going to be associated with a traditional Jewish wedding ceremony. Now, I'm going to just read uh, what a traditional Jewish wedding ceremony would look like. In an ancient tradition, a marriage would be arranged by the family of the bride and the groom. Specifically, the father would send a servant to locate a suitable bride for his son. We've seen this in the past. Uh, Isaac sent his servant into his tribe of his people to find a bride for Jacob. And that is the way things were done. They are probably still being done this way with traditional Jews. Uh, So the servant visited the prospective bride at her family, at her home. A negotiation would follow, gifts would be exchanged, a price would be paid, and the covenant was established. At that moment, the bride and groom were betrothed even though they had yet to meet. Then the servant returns to report his success to the father, who then directs his son to begin building an addition on the father's house, which will serve as his home. Uh, That was the way things were done. It was kind of like a condominium. Every time a son got ready to get married, he just added on to the father's house, and they came back, and they all lived there. Uh, You know, I don't know if they still do that, but that was the tradition when this was written. So, uh, only after he has finished building the addition to the satisfaction of the father can the son claim his bride. Meanwhile, the bride remains at her family home, ready for the groom to appear, but never knowing when he will come because it all depends on the father's judgment. Therefore, she spent every day in her wedding dress waiting to be claimed by her groom. When the father is satisfied, he says, Son, Go get your bride. And the son travels to the bride's home to claim her in a surprise appearing. They travel back together to the father's house where the marriage is formally completed and consummated. The two remain together in the marriage tent for a week. And when the week is complete, the two travel back to the bride's house to celebrate with the bride's family. Uh, Now... I mean, look at this from, a, from God's standpoint and what this may have meant from Jesus explaining this to the disciples because there's a remarkable uh, comparison here. <clears throat> God the Father sent a servant, the Holy Spirit, to the bride's home, the earth. To find a suitable son, to find a suitable bride for his son, Jesus. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is right now and has been for the last 2,000 years. He's locating the bride, one believer at a time, entering into a covenant by which we are betrothed to our groom. We're given gifts by the Spirit 
to mark the entry into the covenant. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit when, when we make that profession of faith. The Father has paid the price to gain us with Christ's blood. Then the waiting begins. That is where we are now. We are the betrothed bride of Jesus waiting for him to come back. We don't know when he's going to return, so we are called to remain spotless and clean, ready for our groom to appear. And in Matthew 24, verse 36, a very common scripture. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I struggled with that for many years. You know, I believe in the Trinity. I believe that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. I don't believe there's anything any of them don't know or do know, that, that they just know everything. And I've never quite understood that. And I don't know that this analogy means anything other than it could be that it's following that traditional wedding uh, ceremony and that Jesus is not going to know until the last Gentile is received that God the Father will say, Son, go get your bride. So, when the Father's satisfied, which means the last church age believer is sealed, God is not up there waiting on Jesus to finish our house. I can tell you that much that I know. What God is waiting on is for that last person to accept him as Savior, that last Gentile believer. So he sends the son to the bride's home to claim her in a surprise appearing. That is the rapture. Jesus is going to come on a day and an hour that we don't know. And he's going to call us up into the air. 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 17 says, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the uh, the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Uh, Then they travel back to the Father's house in heaven where the marriage is formally completed, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's found in Revelation 9, verse 19, verse 7. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So attending this wedding feast, this marriage supper of the Lamb, when we get back to heaven with Jesus, That's going to be the Old Testament saints, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Noah, and it will be possibly the tribulation saints who are going to die in the tribulation. But they are not going to have a resurrected body. They're going to be in in heaven in spirit form (laughs) until they are given new resurrection bodies, uh, which is not going to be this. We are going to get the first resurrection bodies when Jesus comes and raptures us. We're going back with our brand new bodies, just like Jesus had. Uh, So, uh, 
The marriage supper of the Lamb is a glorious celebration of all who are in Christ. But just like in the the scenario of the traditional wedding, it says the two remain together in the marriage tent, which is in heaven, for a week, which is the tribulation period. We know from Daniel's prophecy that a week equals a year, so uh, seven day. I mean, a day equals a year, so a week is seven years worth, which is the tribulation period. When the week is complete, the two travel back to the bride's house, that's back to the earth. We find that in Revelation 19, 13, and 14. This is at the end of the tribulation. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, to celebrate with the bride's family. This is the millennial kingdom. We go to heaven with Jesus. We spend a week in the marriage tent while the tribulation, while all hell is breaking loose on earth. We come back with Jesus at the end of the tribulation when he imprisons Satan and the prophet and the Antichrist. And he's destroyed all evil that has come against his people. That is when the remaining Jews, the remnant, are going to bow and confess him as Lord. And the covenant will be restored. And then we will all move into the millennial uh, kingdom. Now, all of this is really a perfect match for the traditional Jewish wedding. Uh, I can't find anything in here that doesn't match almost perfectly. And I was already in the pre-tribulation camp. Uh, That doesn't mean anything except that's just the way I have seen it, and I've looked at it from a logical standpoint. Well, God doesn't operate in logic, and I know that. But when I read this about the marriage and the, the the, the marriage supper of the Lamb and then us spending a week with Jesus in the, in the marriage tent. That's basically saying to me that we're going to be raptured out of here. We're going to go up to heaven before the seven years of tribulation began, and we're not coming back until it's over. Now, how much of that is just wishful thinking, I can't tell you that, but that's the way I hope it goes because I can tell you this much, you don't want to be here the first year of the tribulation or any other year of the tribulation. It's the worst thing that the earth has ever seen, ever will see. Uh, now, there are plenty of people that, that don't, don't feel this theology or don't, don't, don't see it this way, and I'm not telling you that you need to either. I'm giving you these things that I have run across that have helped me make my own mind up. So uh, there was one other thing I want to, uh, I want to mention. Uh, and I really had never thought about it until I got into this. It's found in Matthew 26, verse 29. Jesus says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And according to this commentator, the Lord actually suspended his last Passover with the disciples with an undrunk cup of wine. And he is going to drink it new with us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, that's... uh, that's the facts that I have, and uh, I, like I said, I, 
I wouldn't argue with anybody because I don't know. But we all have to have some kind of thought process as to what we think and what we believe. And I know he's coming back. If he comes back at mid-tribulation, then that's just what God ordained, and that's what I'll accept uh, because that's, I don't have any choice, really. But uh, let me conclude. Uh, it's, it's time, but I just want to wrap this up to say this because this is the part of the sermon that I think most Baptist churches have. It's not just interesting facts. There is a point, and, and I'm fixing to make that point. There's no doubt that God knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. Uh, we're supposed to know, but I know plenty of people that even question their salvation and they're not sure. And I know this also, that, uh, and I've mentioned this before, that many mainstream pastors uh, Billy Graham, David Jeremiah, Charles Stanley, Adrian Rogers when he was alive, all of them made the, have made the statement that somewhere up to 80% of the people that are sitting in pews across church are not saved. Uh, now, that's, that's something for us to be concerned about. And, and I'm not saying this to scare anybody, but you can't look at me and know whether I'm saved. And I can't look at you and know whether you're saved. It's a personal thing between each individual and God. But what I do know, and I ran across this in this Revelation study, that, uh, and it's just a, a mental picture for me, but, but there is a fine line that separates a saved person from a non-saved person. And that line is so fine it's not even perceptible to a human only God knows where that line is you can't stand on top of the line you can't straddle it you're either on one side or you're on the other it's that fine of a line and the only thing that separates someone who is almost saved from someone who is barely saved is one step and it's important that we don't, uh, we don't succumb possibly to one of Satan's lies. Satan doesn't need to go out to the bars and to the drug cults and, and, and all of this stuff. He doesn't need to go to the uh, houses of ill repute to, to find people and, and, and you know, take them down to hell. Satan does his best work in our lives, in our families, and in our church. And how easy would it be for Satan to convince me when you teach a Sunday school class, you've been a deacon for 20 years, you know, you're standing in the pulpit this morning, you're preaching, uh, you're speaking, and you got it made, brother. Well, what if I'm just almost saved and I never took that last step? Because to look at somebody, to look at them from an outward appearance, there is no difference between someone who is just one step away from being saved and someone who is one step having been saved. And I'm just saying, if you don't know, if you're not sure, do not fall for that scheme of the devil and let that let him take you to hell thinking that you're, you're okay. Uh, now... Uh, I mentioned this before. I think everyone in here has probably seen uh, seen The Chosen. 
And Nicodemus was somebody that I grieved over because Nicodemus knew who Jesus was. He knew who Jesus was. And the chosen portrays him. When Jesus is fixing to leave with his disciples, Jesus had called him, come, follow me. Nicodemus stood around the corner, kind of peeping over at the disciples getting ready to leave. He had given them a big bag of money, but he would not take that step around the corner to go with Jesus. Now, that's sad. And I, I mean, you can't watch that and not feel what Nicodemus was struggling with. But God was gracious, and we know that because Nicodemus was given enough time, he eventually took that step and stood for Jesus, regardless of what the cost were. And uh, my concern, and to, to finalize this, all of these things are interesting, but that line that I'm talking about is an all-important line. And uh, if you don't know, or sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that you are on the right side of that line, then don't, don't take a chance because I can tell you for certain no one can promise you tomorrow. No one can promise you next week. So we don't have a pastor, but if Jackie has a song of invitation or something to do, I will stand down here. If there's a concern, if you want to speak to me, I'll do what I can, and I can certainly uh, lead you uh, through the prayers and the, the understanding of what it means to accept Jesus. There's plenty of deacons in this church. There's pastors everywhere. Just don't let it go undone. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord God, I thank you this morning that you've held me up. And I pray that the words that have been spoken have been received. Lord, thank you for the confidence we have in you that you never leave us or forsake us and that as bad as things seem with what's going on or not going on in this group of believers, you are still in control and we trust you with everything. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity for us to have a relationship with you that goes into eternity. We ask all these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah.